Good morning, Southbridge. We're glad that you're here today, and uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to connect you to Jesus Christ for life change. That's our hope for you. That's our vision. Our mission as a church is to connect people to Jesus for life change. We don't just mean that for people outside these walls. We mean that for those of us who gather together as well, and hopefully we'll see him, connect with him together today. If you're a guest with us, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Thanks for coming and checking out this church, and I don't know how you got here or why it is that you're here, but I'd love to find out if you wouldn't mind inside your worship program, which Lord willing you received on your way in today. There's a little card. We call it a connection card. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment filling that out, we ask for various information and whatever you feel comfortable with filling out, we'd love for you to do that and take it out to the first time guest kiosk and we'll have a card for you. And that's all we ask of you today is fill that card out. Now, just to be clear with you, our hope is that you'd come here today and you'd think we're the most friendly church in the whole world, that you'd experience Christ just by people being cordial in the lobby, you know, smiling and shaking your hand and uh, being friendly and that you desire to come back again and that eventually this would become your church and that these people would become like family to you, which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your family um, in that situation. What I mean by that is that you know that there'll be people that'll be with you no matter what, what's going on in life, and that you'll desire to live life with them in transparent and vulnerable relationships, authentic relationships, getting to know Christ better, and then you decide to continue to be a part of this church and get so committed to the mission and the vision, connecting people to Jesus for life change, you'd give your life away for it. You give away your talents, you'd live sacrificially with your financial resources in that way, you'd give away your time for the sake of connecting other people to Jesus for life change. Now today all we want you to do is fill out the card. But hopefully that's Lord willing what will happen. Eventually you decide to lock arms with people, become a member of this church and even accountable relationships with other believers in that way. And for some of you that today's not your first time, maybe today's a day for you to consider taking the next step in that, whether that's membership or whether that's getting more connected in a small group or whatever that is for you. But uh, we're glad that each one of you are here. And we're going to take the next step today in our series we've been doing through the book of Acts. We've been calling this series Movement because we've seen the movement of God, which is the local church that started in Acts chapter 2. And now we're in Acts chapter 26, and so if you have a copy of the scripture, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 26 today in this message. And as you're turning there, um, just think about your week. I hope you had a good week this week, and I don't know what all the experiences are that you had, but my wife and I had the, the privilege of naming something this week with our family. One of our daughters brought, uh, before we were going to have dinner out of our backyard, a tadpole to our family, so a new pet for us. And we had to decide what we were going to name this tadpole. And we had a much longer conversation about this than we probably should have had. Uh, but we ended up narrowing it down to four names. It was uh, Jackson was one of the names. Eli was another name. One of our children were, con- were focused on naming this tadpole Gumball Station. So Gumball Station was one of the names. And uh, Dwayne was the name that we actually went with. And so if you're Name is Dwayne. I don't mean to offend you at all, but this just kind of seemed like a Dwayne tadpole. So we went with Dwayne for that name. And I don't know if you've ever named anyone or anything before. Maybe you've had a nickname before. If you've ever had a nickname, you know, it can be fun to do, to come up with for someone. And if you think about sports teams, every sports team has a nickname. You know, I'll just give you a little quiz. We've got basketball teams here in North Carolina. Obviously, there's NC State Wolfpack. They're not just NC State. They're the Wolfpack or Duke Blue Devils. It's not just Duke. We have a team in the NBA called the Charlotte Hornets, Hornets not Bobcats. A little quiz for you, just to see if you're paying attention there. So they got a nickname, right? I had a friend email me this week, 40 of the weirdest nicknames for high schools, colleges around the country. And I thought I'd share a couple of them with you, just a couple highlights, not 40 of them. Uh, but one of them, there's actually a high school team that their mascot is the Unicorns. And think about a football team with Unicorns. That's not very intimidating. And they picked purple for their color. A lot of little girls are fans of this team, apparently. Mythical creatures. There's a a team in Wisconsin called the Kimberly Papermakers. There's a team in Utah, the Jordan Beat Diggers. Ooh, that's scary. After they defeat you, they will dig up all of your beets, you know. Syrup Makers are in Georgia. There's a team in Michigan, St. Mary's Prep School. They're the Eaglets. They didn't want to go all out for the Eagles. Like, why did they pick the Eaglets? I had somebody come up to me after the first service and said that they went to a Catholic school in Texas and they were the weed killers. <laughs> the best grounds in all of the world. You know, I don't, I don't know why they're the weed killers. There was somebody else who came up to me who was from West Virginia. Said there's a uh, town in West Virginia, apparently, so I haven't checked this out, but Pokey, West Virginia. And there was a high school there. They were the dots, the Pokey dots, <laughs> whatever. Just being cruel to the children at this point in that school. Um, University of California had some weird ones. UC Irvine Anteaters. Uh, there's a UC Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. What is that? I've found bananas that my kids haven't eaten all of around our house, and that might be it. It's gross, 
Maybe they're trying to gross you out. Scottsdale Community College is known as the Fighting Artichokes. Google names, and there are a lot of fighting things. It doesn't make them intimidating because you put the word fighting in front of it. Fighting artichokes. We're going to fight you with salad contents. There's a minor league baseball team in Alabama called the Montgomery Biscuits. Here was my favorite one. There's a team in Michigan called the Watersmeet Nimrods, which is actually a biblical name. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a character in the Bible. It means mighty hunter. Now, when you get mad at someone and you call them a Nimrod, do you mean mighty hunter or moron? <laughs> Nimrod, mighty hunter. There we go. The thing about nicknames is they tell us something about who we're nicknaming or the, the school that we're nicknaming or the mascot or whatever it is. And so these next two are pretty interesting to me. Uh, and there's a high school in Arizona. They're known as the Yuma Criminals. How about a little vision for the students here? Right? It's a high school, after all. And then the opposite end of the spectrum in Connecticut, obviously opposite coast to the Hill House Academics, not the most intimidating football team ever, but a little vision for your students. I don't know if you've ever had a nickname. Have you ever had a nickname before? You may talk about that with your e-group this week when you get together. What were, what were some of your nicknames? And why is it that someone nicknamed you that? Usually it has to do with a characteristic of ours. Like if you have red hair, they'll call you red. If you've got blonde hair, they might call you blondie. If you're you know, left-handed, they call you lefty. Or if you're tall, sometimes they'll call you shorty. Or you know, if you're really big, they'll call you smalls or whatever it is. You know, there's, there's nicknames. Sometimes they're the opposite, but they tell us something about the person. I've had a lot of nicknames. It seems like high school was a popular time to have nicknames. And one of my nicknames the football team gave me was GQ, but it wasn't a compliment. The reason why they called me that was because I wore so much hairspray. When I take my helmet off, my hair was exactly the same as before I put my helmet on. So I grabbed mom's Aquanet in the morning. Do you remember Aquanet? I don't know. It's probably against the law now. It ruined the ozone. So I put Aquanet on my hair. It was like a double helmet. And so they called me GQ. What are some of your nicknames? Have you, have you had one before? I bet you've probably never been called the nickname that we're going to talk about from our passage today, this, Goad Kicker. Not Goal Kicker if you're a really good soccer player, but Goad Kicker. It comes from a Greek proverb, it's in the Bible, but it was a Greek proverb and it means to resist God. It's useless resistance or to resist your destiny, but used in the Greek literature outside the Bible, it's talking about resisting one of the mythological gods that are out there. And Jesus himself uses it of the Apostle Paul in our passage today, calling him a God resister, a goad kicker. And so the question for us is, are we resistors of God? And the answer is yes, we all do. At one point or time or another in our lives, we have resisted his direction when he's tried to guide us. We've resisted his commands when he's told us. We've not listened or banked our lives on his promises that he's given us. We've tried to go our own way. We've thought that we've known better. And so we've all resisted God at one time or another. The real question for you today that's really relevant today is are you resisting him in any way now? If so, you're a goad kicker. A unique nickname that probably before this service you had never heard of or at least never thought of, a resistor of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 26. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to join me there. Acts chapter 26. We're going to cover, Lord willing, the first half of this chapter today. It's the third time that Paul reveals to us his conversion story. It's the third time it's revealed in the book of Acts. It was Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22. Here we have in Acts chapter 26. But he doesn't just retell the same story every time. There are things that are in this passage that weren't in others, and there are things that aren't in this passage that were in others. And so you look at that, and you wonder, what, why is that? And well, remember what's happening here. We talked about last week, Acts chapter 25. Paul's been on trial for a while. He was falsely accused by the Jews back in Acts chapter 21. He's found innocent in Acts chapter 23. He's found innocent in Acts chapter 24. He's found innocent last week by a Roman official named Festus in Acts chapter 25. But Festus is so confused about what's happening here, he doesn't even know what to write to send Paul along to Caesar, because Paul's appealed to Rome. The leaders, although they found him innocent, were too fearful, they were too cowardly to release Paul because they were afraid of the Jews. And then Paul appeals to Rome so that he can try and get a fair trial, and he's going to appear before Caesar is the plan. And God's promised him he's going to Rome, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And now here he is in Acts chapter 25. Festus is confused. He knows this guy's innocent, but he doesn't even know what charges to write to send him before Caesar. doesn't want to waste Caesar's time. Ah, but his friend shows up. His friend Herod Agrippa, who's a Jewish king. And he knows the Jewish law, and he knows things about Jews. And so he says, will you listen to this guy's story and then tell me what to write down and send him along to Caesar? And so we heard Pastor Jason told us last week that Herod Agrippa is a wicked king, but he knows the Bible. And he likes the Bible, and we'll find out later in Acts chapter 26, he actually believes the prophets, but he doesn't believe it to the point that he'll live by it. 
And so Agrippa comes in with his incestuous relationship with a woman named Bernice who appears as a queen, but it's actually his sister. He's a hedonist. That means he lives for pleasure. But he likes what he hears about the Bible. He's a God resistor. And so what Paul does is he stands before him. Paul doesn't need to become innocent here. He doesn't need to prove his innocence here. So when he defends himself, he's actually not trying to defend himself. He's actually trying to convert Agrippa. And so he's standing before Agrippa. And what Paul does is he tells us how he too was a resistor of God in hopes that he'll connect with Agrippa. And Agrippa will see his resistance and he shares the gospel with them. And so he uses this opportunity to be Acts chapter 1 verse 8, God's witness. And here he is, he's witnessing before a Jewish king. Much like Jesus Christ went on trial before a Roman official named Pilate and before a Jewish king named Herod in Luke chapter 23. And we see it here with Paul as he talks to this God resistor about his own resistance. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 26. We'll read the first 14 verses together right now. Then Agrippa, after he comes in with great pomp and circumstance, we saw at the end of chapter 25, then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul, and so here's Paul in contrast to Agrippa with his robes and the big entrance with all the officials and the music. Here's Paul in chains for Christ. He motions with his hand and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And because, or especially so, because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies, so you understand Judaism. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That's code for, this isn't going to be short. Not this message, that one that Paul's, anyway. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child. And so he's talking about the Jews. The Jews, the very reason that Paul's on trial is because the Jews are resisting God. They won't realize, they won't accept that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that's been promised throughout the Old Testament, that all the promises about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so they they won't fulfill their Judaism. And so Paul's saying, I am still a Jew, and I understand the Jews. They can testify about me of how I lived. Verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 5. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, if they'll tell the truth, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So more than most of them, I obeyed all the rules, all the law. Verse 6, and now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial. It's because I believe all the stuff the Jews believe that the Jews have put me on trial. He's saying it doesn't even make sense. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead. And so he's saying this to Agrippa, who believes the Bible. And we'll read later, he believes the prophets. He says, if you believe the prophets, Agrippa, I know you do later in Acts chapter 26. He's saying, this isn't incredible. This is the story of the Bible, not just the New Testament. The whole Bible is a story of resurrection. Jesus Christ is not the, the only resurrection we see in the Bible. We see in the beginning, God creates out of nothing. He brings life out of nothing. We see barren women in the Old Testament continually be given children. God's giving life. He gives life out of death. He takes ashes, turns them to glory. That's the story. That's the Christian story. It's not Easter today, but Jesus Christ has risen. He's risen indeed. And that's what Paul's saying. You shouldn't consider this incredible if you believe the Bible, which Agrippa does. So this shouldn't be considered incredible. But then he says in verse 9, and here's where we'll spend our time today, about how he resisted God. He said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to resist, oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then verses 10 through 11, he talks about the different ways he resisted. Verse 10, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, first, I put many of the saints in prison. Also, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I gave approval. He's probably referring to, we saw the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian to die for his faith. Acts chapter 7 and 8. That, but not just that. Look what else he says. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme, to deny the name of Christ. Also, in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. But here's what God did. God intervened. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest about noon, O king. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. One who kicks against the goads, goad kicker. Paul, a God resistor. 
See, everyone knew, and Agrippa would know at that time, that to call someone a goad kicker, one who kicks against the goads, is to say they're fighting against the resisting God. Now, it's also true that everyone knew that you don't want to fight God. You go throughout the book of Acts. You see, in Acts chapter 5, there's a guy who stands up. His name is Gamaliel. He's actually the mentor to the Apostle Paul. And he stands before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin at that time, and tells them that they're about to, they want to kill Peter and John in Acts chapter 5 because they're preaching about Jesus. And he says to them, listen, you've seen these other people rise up and try and lead religious deals. And, and if they're fake like these other people were, it's going to fade away. But if it's real and you try to kill them, you're fighting against God. That's a battle you can't win. Acts chapter 5, verse 39. You can read it on your own and put it up on the screen later. Don't fight God. Now, the problem is this. It's rare that someone knows they're fighting against God. There are people, and maybe you're here today, and and this is true for you, and you just came to kind of give God a chance, or maybe you just wanted fodder for things that you wanted to argue that are against God and why he doesn't exist. I don't know. But there are the exceptions of people who literally shake their fist at God and they're rebelling against God. There's the outspoken atheists that are against God and those that turn their back and they run from God. But the majority of people don't realize they're resisting God. Like Paul here, he actually thought he was living for God. And Paul was using God to resist God. That's probably the scariest place you can be. There's other people. There's, maybe you're like Agrippa. Maybe like Agrippa. You know what the Bible says, you like what the Bible says, and that's why you're here today, and you you like to hear the truth, and maybe that's why you go to Bible study or you do different things, but then you like what you do, and what you do and what you hear, they don't correlate, they don't go together, but you like what you do more than what you like what you hear, so you continue to do things that are contrary to the Bible, like Agrippa, this incestuous relationship with Bernice, with this hedonism, which means he lives for pleasure, he just does what his sinful desires are. But he likes what the Bible says. Or maybe you're like the Jews. The Jews know the claims of Jesus. They believe the Bible. They think they're actually doing the things God wants them to do, but they won't place their faith in Jesus. And so they're just hoping that someday it can all work. I'll live a good life and it'll work itself out. They're resisting God. They're goad kickers. Paul's a goad kicker. Agrippa's a goad kicker. Maybe it's different for you. Maybe God's directed your life in some way and you're doing your own thing. Maybe you think you know better than God, and so you got a better plan if you just get on board with your plan. Maybe you're not even listening. You haven't asked him. You're not seeking him. It's all resistance to God, and what we're going to see that Paul shows us in this passage is that resisting God can be painful. Resisting God can, underlined, be painful. And I say can be because in temporary circumstances, we know that sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes uh, you can go and do your own thing, and it can look like, and you can even call it God's blessing, it can look like things are going well, the financial prosperity or health prosperity, or do things that, that seem well for you. And that happens for wicked. The Bible even tells us that. The book of Proverbs, read the Proverbs. Sometimes the wicked prosper. But eternally, it always is painful. Because what you're sacrificing is your relationship with God. What you're doing is you're building a barrier between you and God. And so you can go through the motions as a Christian where you do the same things, you read the same things, but there's no life there. And you know what that's like. It's the resistance with God. And some people, they just turn their back. They're running from God. Some people haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Savior. Eternally, the consequences are the greatest they can possibly be. For a believer, best case scenario is maybe you lose out on some rewards in heaven. But it's painful. The illustration that Paul's using, the, Jesus is using here with Paul of kicking against the goats is a painful illustration. It's actually a picture on a farm situation. It's an, uh, an image that's being painted. And everyone that would hear this then would understand this and know this. Agrippa would know this of an ox or a horse or a donkey uh, that was being yoked. And so when they'd put the plow on the animal, it would naturally resist. It would fight against it as a young animal. And so the ox, just use ox for example, the ox would kick against the goads. What a goad was is if you had a one-handed plow and you were a plowman, you'd hold the plow with one hand and the other hand you'd have a stick. The stick was the goad. At the end of the stick was a sharp metal or at least sharpened stick that you'd put behind the heels of the ox. So that whenever the ox kicked against the goad, it was hurt. It taught it not to resist. It was learning a lesson the hard way. 
Some animals are more stubborn than others, just like people, uh, and would resist more and more and cause more and more pain in their lives. If it was a large uh, wagon-type uh, situation uh, for that animal, then there'd be a bar. The, the master wouldn't hold it, but he'd direct and guide the animals. And as they resisted the master and didn't want to go in the master's direction and they got angry, they would kick against the goad. They would kick into those spikes that were on that bar. That's what it was to kick against the goad. And who do they ultimately hurt? They hurt themselves. Isn't that how it works? We're ultimately hurting ourselves in this process when we resist God. Think about it like this. Think of your greatest regret in your life. Whatever that was. If you go back to that time, and it might not be true in 100% of the time, but proverbially, like a proverb here that we're talking about, generally speaking, if you had done what God directed you to do and God wanted you to do in that situation, how much pain could have been saved? And so here's Paul standing before this man, Agrippa, who does his own thing, who's resisting God, is a God resister, and he's speaking to him. And now, and we talked about last week, how Herod has a history, his whole family has a history of resisting God. He's the first Herod we see in the Bible is in Herod the Great. In Matthew chapter 2, he's the one who kills all the babies in Bethlehem because he wants to kill Jesus, because he doesn't want Jesus, the rightful king of the Jews, to grow up and be king of the Jews. I want to take his position. And so he kills Jesus. That's a God resister. In Luke chapter 23, we see Jesus appear before Herod. It's one of Herod the Great's sons. He's the same guy who had John the Baptist's head cut off. He's a God resister. Acts chapter 12, we see a Herod there. It's the father of Agrippa II here. He kills James, the apostle. He's a God resister. This is in his family that they do this. But here's Herod, Agrippa II. He hasn't done this kind of extreme thing yet, but he's still resisting God with his pursuit of pleasure. But he likes the Bible. He's kind of like... It's kind of like the person that you call him a weekend warrior. Maybe you party like crazy on Saturday, come to church on Sunday to kind of balance everything out, a little holiness to get the little hell out of you, you know, whatever the situation is there. Or, or you got some people that, you know, go to Bible study and do your thing. You love the Bible and read the Bible and you've memorized Genesis. But then you go rip somebody off in a business deal. That's what Agrippa's like. Agrippa, I know the Bible, believe the Bible. It just doesn't do anything in my life. He mentally agrees with it. It's not a conviction. And Paul trying to speak to his heart. He says, I know the resistance of the Jews. And he talks about that in verses four through eight. He talks about his own resistance in verse nine. You go back to verse nine. He says, I too was convinced. There was no change in my mind. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible, anything in my power, whatever it takes to oppose, resist the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Verse 10. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem, in my city. Notice that he starts in his city. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. So that's one of the things he did. He went and he arrested them. He'd go into their houses, he'd grab them by the hair, pull them out of the house, throw them in jail. And then when they'd execute them, he cast his vote against them. He gave approval of that. But not only that, verse 11, he says many a time. So he's a southerner, many a time, many a time. Love that phrase. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another. So I went from synagogue to synagogue. And the synagogues had their own disciplinary system. So if someone required discipline... They had their own court to be able to decide what discipline would take place in that situation. And we see it in Paul's life. We've seen it through the book of Acts. He's uh, been uh, disciplined by synagogues for preaching about Jesus. In Acts chapter 14, they stone him to the point where they think he's dead. He talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. It wasn't from the Romans. This wasn't Roman government. It wasn't the rulers of the day. It was from a synagogue, a local group of Jews. Five times he was flogged. And so he's going around, he's having people flogged, he's having people stoned. And why is that? He's trying to get them to blaspheme, it says. Went from synagogue to synagogue, verse 11, to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. So he tried to force them to curse the name of Christ, to deny the name of Christ. So it goes something like this. We're stoning some guy. And then Paul says, stop. You're going to die if you don't deny Christ. What would you like to do? I don't know how many Christians died. He says, many here, many times. And he'd go to another town, and maybe that synagogue, they would do floggings there, and so he'd have them flogged. That doesn't feel very good, does it? If you deny Christ, we'll stop. And some of them were probably flogged to death. We don't know how many. We do know that not many Christians denied Christ because we have a Roman official governor who writes to an emperor in the second century. His name is Pliny, and we've got documents from him writing to them saying, that it's impossible to get a true Christian to deny Christ. Which makes me think, I wonder if they did that. And if there's even a threat of torture in America, how much would church attendance go down? And what would it take for me is what I really reflect on. 
Would I break? I don't know until I'm in the situation, but is there a point of pain where I, w- I would say, just say the words to make them stop, or would I be willing to die for Christ? I don't know. You don't know. But we know whether we're willing to live for him. And Paul lists these things that he does. And then he gets to the peak of all the things he does. He says, here's the, here's the climax. Here's the pinnacle. In my obsession, interesting choice of words, in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. In other words, I went on mission trips to stop Christianity. You think about here, he started in Jerusalem, but he said that then I even went to other cities, other places, foreign lands to stop Christianity. And you think about how missions works here. You think about our church. We talk about our vision, connect people to Jesus for life change. And we're committed to that. We want to see that happen. We want to do it every Sunday. We want to see people that are here connected to Jesus for life change. So then you take the gospel out and impact people. We do stuff. We do programs. We got uh, Southbridge serves. We do it in October every year. You can mark your calendars. I think it's the end of October. Uh, we're trying to serve our city in the name of Christ. Our student ministry is doing a thing called Dispatch this summer, and at the end of June, they're trying to serve our city in the name of Christ. And we, do, we tell every member of our church, we want you to have at least one person, one person. God wants you to have more, but we say as a church, one person that you're praying for and being intentional about sharing Christ with and trying to love them and, and share Jesus with them. But then there are some people that are so passionate about that, they not only want their coworkers and their neighbors and their employees or employers or kids or whoever it is they come into contact with in normal life here, that they will actually take time off work, they will spend money, they'll go away from family, use vacation time, whatever, and they'll travel around the world to tell people about Jesus Christ. And we do it as a church, and some of you do it as things outside the church. And we've got a trip to Madagascar in August, we've got a couple trips coming up to Panama. Some of you will do that. Why do you do that? Because you want everyone to hear about Christ. Paul's saying, I was that passionate about stopping people from hearing about Christ. But then God intervened. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest, he says in verse 12. And about noon, verse 13, that's the brightest time of the day. About noon, he's in the Middle East, obviously. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Which is interesting when you think about the rest of the New Testament. And there's a, there's a verse in the book of Timothy. Well, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, God lives in unapproachable light. Do you ask yourself, Paul, how do you know that? Right here. This is the glory of God breaking into creation. His glory is brighter than, see, unapproachable light. You can't even look at that light. He's saying here, it was brighter than the sun in the middle of the day. And I love the word he uses to describe it here, blazing. So there's an inferno around us around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. We didn't know that before in the other accounts of his story. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, we didn't know it was in Aramaic before. We didn't know God was speaking Aramaic. Now we know. New parts of the story. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You goad kicker. You're resisting God, Paul. And you look at this, and some of you might be like, well, I don't resist God like that. I mean, maybe I don't do what he says sometimes. There are different people all throughout the Bible. You see different extremes of people resisting God. Maybe you don't identify with Paul and what he says here. I think he's trying to identify with Agrippa, and he's an extreme case. But think throughout the Bible and all the people we see doing activities that are resisting God. Look at Pharaoh. He's a classic example in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the guy that Moses goes before and says, will you let my people go and worship God? And sometimes he's like, okay, no, 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 no. Sometimes you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. But what happens every time is there's a plague. You know what those plagues are? Those plagues are actually God, the one true God, the Father, fighting against the Egyptian idols, the false gods that they worship in Egypt and showing I'm more powerful than those gods. Whether you see the flies or the frogs or other different things, you start reading Egyptian history, what you realize is they worship gods associated with those things. And so the plague is happening for God to show that he's more powerful, better than those gods. It's a warning sign of what he's going to do, the big thing that's going to come. And so I ask you, any warning signs in your life that you're ignoring that God's bringing into your life? And maybe you don't see it. You don't realize it. You're so focused on your idol, the thing you put in the place of God in your life. Could be career, could be money, could be reputation, could be another person. And God's trying to show you, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm worthy of your trust. I'm here. Maybe like Pharaoh resisting God. Or there's a blatantly obvious example, Jonah. Jonah's a guy who God tells him which way to go in his life. He literally turns his back and goes the opposite direction. We got any runners here? Maybe you came today, just giving God a shot. 
people running from God. You're actually doing, you know you're not doing what God's called you to do. That's Jonah. It ends up being painful in his life. You've got other people in the Bible that if I told you their name, you'd go, oh yeah, obviously they're a resistor. But if you knew them at certain points in time in their life, would you know? You think about a guy like Judas? Oh, of course. I mean, Judas denies Jesus and betrays him. Back up before that. If you knew Judas, what about when he was one of the 12? He's got a personal relationship with Jesus, to use our language. Not the Bible's language, but our language. And he's close with Jesus. But you know what? You see it throughout his life. He doesn't, he's not really interested in Jesus. He wants Jesus for what Jesus can do for him. He's a resistor. He's using Jesus for personal gain. You see him stealing from the treasury. You see him jockeying for position. Once he realizes Jesus isn't going to be the political leader he wants him to be, he sells Jesus out. That, was, that last part of the story was just a sign of stuff that's always been there. Some of us were using God for personal gain. You're a resistor of God. Look at a guy named Peter. Peter's not a resistor. He preaches the message. Acts chapter 2, the whole church gets started. No, no, back up. Not his denial. Back up. Think about Peter when he gets told about Jesus being crucified. Jesus comes to him and says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest, the elders. I'm going to be killed. Peter says, no, not you, God. What is he doing? He's saying, I know better than you do, God. I know a plan that's better than your plan. God, just listen to my plan. You know what Peter is? He's a resistor of God. That's why Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He's not Satan, but he's performing the function of Satan because he's resisting God. And there are lots of ways that we can do it. Do any of those identify with you? Use God? Know better than God? Here's some other ones uh, that you can find throughout the Bible. There are verses. I won't give you all the verses. I want you to ask yourself the question. Unbelief. Resist God by just not believing it. We deny his word. He says things. We rationalize and justify why it doesn't apply to us. Nehemiah 9.26. You want to look that up? We resist his counsel. We distrust his power. Do we ever do that? Deny his word. Resist his counsel. Deny his power. Refuse to listen. We just don't even want to hear from him. Live according to our own thoughts rather than his thoughts. Even though his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We are stubborn. There are lots of ways. If we resist God, you know what it actually is? It's to our own hurt. It's our own detriment. Because we have a heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts. We have a heavenly father who knows what's best, knows more than us, and wants what's best for us. But oftentimes we function like little children. I think about my kids and how we have certain rules uh, that we have for our kids. And they're like universal rules. Don't play in the road. Don't jump out of the windows. Don't eat all the candy you can possibly stuff in your body. But they want to do those things. And they think, like even the garden, they think you're holding out on me and I've got to go my own way in order to accomplish what I want and what I need and what I, what's right for me and what's best for me. And they don't trust. They don't trust that we actually know what's best for them. It's like my wife went to check on one of our daughters the other day, our four-year-old daughter. They went to bed and, uh, you know, they go up there. We tell them, don't jump on the bed. Sometimes I jump on the bed. They do all this stuff. My wife goes up there and she finds one of our kids laying in bed and she looks like she's all bloody. Because she's got blood coming out of her ear, it's in her hair, it's on her nose, it's on the sheets. And so my wife's starting to panic. I think she really hurt herself. But then she, she realizes it's chocolate. So she got into chocolate and it thought, I don't know why she put it in all the orifices of her. Maybe she ate so much it was coming out of her nose. I don't know. But she had so much chocolate. And you know what? That, I know that she's not going to feel well in the morning. That's why it's not because I'm trying to rob her of joy. See, I don't know if their kids realize how much I want them to have joy, how much I want them to have satisfaction, how much I want them to be happy. But I know stuff they don't know. And here we thought that they really hurt themselves. No, they did. It was going to be cranky the next day. It's not going to go well and all that kind of stuff. But you know what hurts me is you don't trust me. You don't trust that I'm telling you no because I want what's best for you. And that's what we oftentimes do with God. You know what the ultimate pain is, the ultimate hurt? Is that we are denying ourselves by resisting God, relationship with our creator, the relationship we are created for and created by this creator to know intimately, that's what we lose. It's not that circumstances go bad. It's not that you won't have this kind of blessing. Sometimes the wicked prosper. It's that you miss out on him and he is ultimate. But when we don't believe that, that's not compelling. And so we resist God, and it can be painful. It will be eternally painful. But just as resisting God can be painful, surrendering to God is powerful. Surrendering to God is powerful. It's one of those Christian paradoxes. You know, the Bible's filled with paradoxes. If you want to be exalted, you've got to humble yourself. You want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. Here we have another one. Powerful surrender. It's when you wave the white flag that you experience the power of God. 
It's powerful. It's always powerful when you surrender your life to God. It's not easy. It's easy to say. It's not easy to do. And here we see it happen with Paul in this passage of Scripture. Remember, up until this point, he knows that God's intervening in his life. He knows that this light that's broken through creation is God. He doesn't know who it is. And look what happens in verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? Imagine how these words struck Paul. I am Jesus. That had to rock his world. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. He's just been told and he knows his divine voice. You're kicking against the goad. It's hard, impossible, difficult, painful for you to kick against the goad. Who? Jesus. That had to change everything for Paul. At this moment, Paul experiences Jesus in a way he's never experienced Jesus before. Up until this point, he has not experienced the peace of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power that comes from knowing him. He's been moved from the power of Satan to the power of God. He didn't even realize he was living in the power of Satan. He's been directed from darkness to light. He experiences the intimacy of Christ, the attentiveness of Christ, the discipline of Christ. Many things that if we're resisting God, we don't experience either. And so are you? That'd be the question for you to reflectively ask yourself as we think about that. But here Paul tells us two things that are clearly new for him. The first one is when he says, I am Jesus, he realizes Jesus is alive. He says, whom you are persecuting, which is interesting because Paul thought Jesus was dead. And when Paul was persecuting, he wasn't persecuting Jesus himself, was he? He was going around, he was getting Christians, arresting Christians. He just said in verses 9 through 11 what he was doing. I was convinced I ought to resist Jesus. I ought to oppose everything about the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So I go and I get the church, the saints, the believers, the followers of the way, the Christians. He didn't say I went and got Jesus. So the first thing that Paul learns here is this. Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed, whether it's Easter or not. The second thing he realizes is what Jesus is like. Go back to verse 15, and Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So what is Jesus saying here? Because we learned something about our Savior at this moment. He's saying, Paul, when you stoned them, you were stoning me. Paul, when you were flogging those Christians many a time, you were flogging me. Because Jesus was saying, I am so connected with and so united with my people that when they suffer, I suffer. And so what that means for you and I is that that means that when you hurt, he hurts. When I hurt, he hurts. Because we're one. And so when you fight against his church, you fight against Jesus. When you fight against his people, you fight against Jesus. When you hurt one of God's people, you're hurting Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder, the text doesn't say this, but I wonder if Paul at that moment thought to himself about the life he had lived as a Pharisee and a Jew, the strictest sect, and all that he had tried to do. And he realized at that moment that Jesus offers something that Judaism can never offer. That being a good boy and going to a small group and being on the mission trips and tithing on the dill and mint and cumin, and that's what the Pharisees did, and making up rules beyond the rules of the Bible just to protect us from ever getting close to the rules of the Bible and being the best you could possibly be would never deliver to him the intimacy that Jesus Christ is talking about here. I wonder if at that moment he thought to himself, I want a savior like that. And I wonder if his motive is, and I think I can make an argument for this from the text, is that he wanted Agrippa to come to that place. When he told Agrippa that line, why include this line? There's other things you left out. You didn't talk about being blind here like you did in, the other, in Acts chapter 22. You didn't talk about Ananias like you did in other places. You, you, didn't, you left all that stuff out. Why did you include this, Paul, before Agrippa? Because you wanted Agrippa to come to the realization that Jesus offers something that his sin can never offer him? That his hedonism, that his pursuit of pleasure, that his relationship with Bernice, that, that those things will never deliver for him, that his reputation, that all of the clothes, that all the money, that all the stuff, that will never deliver to him in Jesus Christ? Because he's an amazing savior, and Paul was rescued by him out of the battle while he was resisting. Which made me think of a story that I saw this week. There was a guy named Captain William Swenson who recently won the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, which is a big deal. And the reason why he won that 
was because he was leading a column of troops, American and Afghan troops, a column, a straight line formation of troops uh, in Afghanistan on September 8th in 2009. And what they were doing is they were leading some Afghan officials to a meeting. And as they were doing this, they were ambushed on three sides. The reason why Captain Swanson won this medal was, among other things, because he ran out into live fire, grabbing and rescuing wounded and, and grabbing dead bodies, too, and bringing them back to a medevac helicopter that came in once they were aware of the ambush. It happened to work out that day that one of the pilots on the medevac helicopters had a GoPro camera on his helmet. And so you can actually Google on YouTube and see some of the video of what happened, live battle that took place. And Captain Swenson, incredibly heroic, runs into live fire, grabs men. He, brought, he grabbed the sergeant. He grabbed uh, one guy that was shot in the neck. And they show him bringing him back to the medevac helicopter. He puts him in the helicopter, and it's a moving scene. You don't hear any words or anything. But he brings this guy back in, and he leans in, and he kisses him on the head. And then he runs back out to rescue more men. And I saw that and thought, that's the gospel. But then I thought, no, it's not the gospel. Incredibly heroic, what uh, Captain Swanson did. I'm not taking anything away from him at all. But you see, when Jesus Christ came to rescue us, not only did he come into an intense situation of battle over your souls, over sin, and over death, but he wasn't grabbing his men and his women and his children. He was actually grabbing the enemy. It's while we were resisting him that he comes in. And he doesn't just run into live fire. He takes on the live fire. He takes on the full wrath of God for you and for me. And so the gospel is even, even bigger than that, even better than that. And what happens? What happens is what we see in verses 16 through 18 in this passage, that then he changes everything about you, and he changed everything about Paul. Changes his position, is now positioned in Christ. Changes his mission, is now mission is Christ. He changes his identity, his identity is now in Christ. He changed everything about him, so that everything about us is now in Christ. So our hope is in Christ, our victory is in Christ, our help comes from Christ, our promises are in Christ, everything's from Christ. So he changes everything. And you know what he says here specifically? You go from darkness to light. You go from the power of Satan to the power of God because surrendering to God is powerful. Everything changes. That's what he lists for Paul in this passage. Look at what he says here. Look at some of these things. They're amazing. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you. Here's why. To appoint you as a servant and a witness. You can underline those two words. That's what the whole book of Acts has been about. It's a climactic point in the book of Acts. How do you serve, Paul? Well, we've seen it throughout the book. As a witness. The first word informs the second. You want to serve? Be a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Not just Paul, all believers. You, me, all of us. I have appointed you to be a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me. That's what a witness does. So when you witness and I witness and different people witness about God and who he is and what he's done in our lives, every story is different. But it's all the same. We all have different details. What we say might be all different, but it's ultimately that you are resisting God. You need to be reconciled to him, and he's, he's come on a search and rescue mission for you. You, to be a servant and a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. So it's not just at the point of salvation. He continues to reveal himself to us. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people, Paul, from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. And here's why. Here's the mission. Verse 18, to open their eyes. Turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness. So Paul received forgiveness of sins. That's pretty amazing considering Paul did the greatest sin that anyone can do. Do you know what the greatest sin anyone can do is? If I ask you that question, what's the greatest sin? Some of you may think to yourself, murder, abuse, treason, lots of different stuff may pop in your head. The greatest sin that anyone can do is resist God. And here's why. It's not because of the activity of resisting God. It's because of the one you're resisting. You're resisting the most supreme being ever. And so you're sinning against God. And he's saying, you're cleansed of that. You're washed of your sins. That's one of the most amazing parts of the gospel. Is that God offers forgiveness. That alone is enough. But look at the next word. Great word. And there's more? You get forgiveness of sins when you trust Christ as your Savior, but there's more? He says, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Some of your translations say, and an inheritance. Yeah, you get a new inheritance. And, and Peter tells us that inheritance cannot perish, spoil, or fade. You can't touch it. There's nothing that can happen to it. God's guaranteed it for you. And you can keep telling other people, and they get inheritances, nothing gets taken away from you. It's unlike an inheritance here on earth. 
Like I read about this week, Donald Sterling, owner of the L.A. Clippers. He's been on the news. I think I saw he was the most hated man in America at this moment. So you may have read something about him. Well, he's selling his team. He said that he could get a buyer for $2.5 billion. This is before the actual sale. And he said if that happens, that he's going to be upset with the NBA because they're going to cost his heirs 300 to $500 million in taxes. And I didn't feel bad for him, if I'm real candid with you. But he's saying some of the inheritance can be taken away. If I have to sell the team, isn't that exactly what we see in the Bible? Where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, and these things here can all be taken away. But what God's saying to Paul is, listen, I've forgiven your sins. I've taken you from light or from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. I've given you forgiveness, and there's more. And I have an inheritance for you. And I've changed your position. Your position's in Christ. And, and I've changed your, your power. Your power comes from Christ. And I've changed your mission. Your mission is now Christ. And what is your mission? Verse 18, to open their eyes. Because Paul wasn't just being told here, here's all the things I've done for you, Paul. Go back in the verse. Verse 16, 17, 18, I will send you. Now I'm unleashing you on the world to share this with everyone else as my servant and my witness. And that's what he's doing with each one of us. That's the mission. That's been the point of Acts the whole time. Verse 18, here's what you do. Open their eyes. They should see Christ through you. Open their eyes. Now, since before our church began, I've prayed for members of our church that God would give us eyes to see people the way that Jesus sees people. That we'd see real needs, that we'd see real pain, that we'd see real things that are going on. Be able to see past the veneer of all the things that happen. I read this week this passage and felt convicted that I need to be praying God, open their eyes, those people that we're going to reach, so that they can see you. And God, please help them see you through us. See, sometimes I get people that come to me and they'll ask me, what should I do with my life? And I give you verse 18. That's my answer, simple answer. I had somebody come to me last week, what should I do? Let me tell you the answer I usually get. I don't know. I don't know all the details. If I give you counsel in this, and you've only told me your version of the story, I don't know the details. Unless God divinely gives me something in this moment, I don't know. But I do know verse 18 Here's your mission. Open their eyes. So if you're a mom, your mission is to open the eyes of your children to Jesus Christ. Open their eyes. Why? And turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and they can too have the inheritance. And so if you're a counselor trying to fix all their problems, get their marriage together, no. Open their eyes to Christ. If you're a caregiver trying to make bandage the wounds, don't. Open their eyes to Christ. If you're an entrepreneur, that is a platform to open their eyes to Christ. If you're an IT director, open their eyes to Christ. If you're a student, open their eyes to Christ. If you're going through a trial, as Jed said, Pastor Jed said, he was reading in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus had trouble in this world. Okay, some of us think if we're just more faithful, then we won't have any problems. If we just do the right things, can you be more faithful than Jesus? Well, Jesus was completely faithful, never sinned, and they killed him. But he's overcome the world. And so in your tragedy, in your trial, in your hurt, in your troubles that are mentioned in John chapter 16, open their eyes to Christ. Say, I don't have a job. I'm unemployed. That is your platform to open their eyes to Christ in that situation. And your hobby groups and your Starbucks visits and you're going to Walmart and you open their eyes to Christ. So I'm in a cubicle and I have a platform. Now that is your platform to open their eyes to Christ. That is what you do. See, so many of us, we separate our lives. We separate our finances. And so we, have, we resist God in our finances. And we don't use our finances to open people's eyes to Christ. We separate our professional worlds. So I could just get my job done at the bank. And if I get the thing done, and then, then I can go and then I can have my devotions. Then I can go to church. Then I can. No. He's given you that as a platform to open people's eyes for Christ. It's where you live and move and have your being. Acts chapter 17. But we resist. We resist. We miss out. We miss out on him. We resist the mission. We're, we're resisting God. We're a goad kicker. Are you resisting God? Are you resisting submitting to him for salvation? Are you resisting submitting to him and being his servant and his witness? Are you resisting him in some area of your life? If so, you need to surrender because surrender is powerful. And then he unleashes you on this world, the very power that he raised Christ from the dead with at work in you. And he will be with you in the process of being his witness, his servant in your sphere of influence to make a difference for him. Why? To open their eyes for Christ. That's powerful. So do you need to surrender? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm going to have the worship team come. I'm going to play a little bit of music. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of dedication over our church. And 
as I pray, I want to ask you, will you pray individually though? Like you can pray with me, but you know what's going on in your life. You know what the details are. You know if there's an area you're resisting. You know if you haven't been listening. You know if you've been using God probably to resist God. You've got all the spiritual reasons. You could justify it. You could convince me. You could convince someone else. But ask God to search your heart and show you if there's any offensive way in you. Some of you have been resisting God for salvation. You need to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior right now. He's extending it to you like a gift. Like I'd be handing you a gift in my hand. You've got to take it. When you surrender, that is powerful. You move from darkness to light. He changes everything about you. And he gives you forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that your will would be done here in this service as it's done in heaven. That you would receive glory. That you would receive honor. That you would receive praise and worship from our lives and God the things in our lives that are not as they should be will you change them right now will you remove rebellion will you melt proud hearts God if there are some that need to turn to you for salvation I pray that right now they would trust you they would pray and you can just pray a prayer like this Father I know that I'm a sinner and I need your son Jesus to be my savior I want Jesus to be my savior right now and you can pray that right now And Father, I pray for those that are believers. We still resist you. It's a battle. It's a continual struggle of wanting to do our own thing, thinking we know better, having areas. We reveal those to us right now as we even come to you in prayer. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you transform our hearts? Would you transform our minds? Would you transform everything about us to live into the plan that you want, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would forgive us our sins and that you'd help us to forgive those who sinned against us and that Father, we give you glory for what you've provided, not just the bread that you provided, but the platforms you provided and the cubicles you provided and the children you provided and the coworkers and the neighbors and the position and the opportunity to breathe and to speak your words and to know a language and that we'd use all of that to be your servants and your witnesses to open eyes, open eyes to your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those that have been caught up in the mundane, the routine, the American dream, whatever it is, and they've missed your mission. And God, I pray that they would surrender everything to you. I pray that we would be all yours, vessels to be used by you. And we surrender to you. In Jesus' name I pray.